careful because the red mud is like quicksand. So I'll, I'll go first. Yeah, you get, maybe that's a better idea. Yeah. The yeah, rain is steady from almost the moment we turn the four-wheel drive into the Hewenbrook Valley. It's only half an hour west of Mullumbimby in the New South Wales Northern Rivers region, but it feels like we've travelled a lot further. The biggest concern is because the river and creeks have gotten so much debris and, and rocks all through them, it doesn't take much to fill it back up. All of the catchments are already full and the ground's already saturated, so it, it doesn't take much rain for it to all flood again. The Hewenbrook Creek runs down the edge of the vast tweed caldera, a rugged wilderness of steep valleys and dense rainforest. The caldera stretches from the hinterland around Byron Bay in the south to near the Gold Coast in Queensland. It is actually a little bit surreal because you get to a point where the road is normal again and you would never know on either side that this is what's in between and it kind of just has that eeriness about it but everything's just so normal. You know something's not right. We're hiking along the creek with community responder Kaylee Tupin. A big landslide there. has cut the road, so we're picking our way along a muddy single track with the creek to our right and the slowly shifting mass of earth and trees towering over us to our left. There's about a kilometre of road washed out and there are more than 100 people living beyond the landslide with no way in or out save for this treacherous muddy path. When we get there, it's been this way for nearly two months. It's interesting, this water's really clean. You can tell it's, I guess, just run straight off the top of the surface of the, of the landscape. Yeah, well, even so, I've been uh, getting water samples because it's so important to just check it. A lot of the residents have asked me to see if it's safe to swim in for their children. And uh, also a lot of people use it for irrigation and things like that. There were cars in the creek from the flood, animals. We pick our side. way along the track, which in parts is barely discernible from the hillside. Mostly it's just a pile of mud and rubble. We pass by a man who is cutting steps out of planks of wood, which he'll place over the mud to make the track a little more solid. How's it going? I'm Tom. Tom. Really nice to meet you. Me too, Jay. Well, Jay, yeah. lovely to meet you. We're met on the other side of the washed out road by local builder Jay. He's taken on the role of community leader in the valley. Two landslides and about a K of road missing. Um, most driveways are the same sort of state. Just navigating that. Uh, most of them up this end are elderly. So just helping everyone out and yeah. So when you say elderly, what sort of age are we talking? Well, the next youngest is late 60s. How old are you? 38. You're a young fella around yeah. here. Yeah, around here, yeah. yeah. Oh, they're okay with the, with the hand down, but that's why we're building pallet stairs up over the slide. And The track is extremely dangerous. The landslide wiped out the road from above and the flooding Hewenbrook Creek eroded it from beneath. There are sections where the road is suspended over nothing. Well, they're more worried about this sort of stuff. It's not what's happened down the bottom, but it's all the stuff that's sitting up the top waiting to come down, so... The geomorphologist has been through and he said it's a challenging exercise. So this could go at any second, is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. The geomorphologist said when you get to that point, just jog, so. Okay, I'll remember that for when we go back down. Yeah. 
At the moment, Jay is focused on making it easier to get in and out of this valley, and he says that between locals, volunteers and the army, it is getting better. So the Fijian army's been up here too? Yeah. The first time, yeah. That's amazing. I suppose they'd be good at... They were brilliant. Jungle works. They were yeah. absolutely brilliant. I think they're actually running a training exercise for the ADF. They had already arranged a training exercise in Fiji to learn how to build primitive bridges, and instead they brought them here because we needed bridges. But it's going to take a lot more than a few middle-aged locals with shovels wading through the slop. There's no word on when this mess might get cleaned up. So at the point now that you think at it, you know, what do you do? How do you reinstate the roads? But there's been no communication from any of the government or council or anything in regards to this area and their plans, and people are just waiting. I'm Tom Melville, and this is part two of Disaster Country, a Voice of Real Australia series looking at how equipped we are to deal with the climate change-induced disasters which are already upon us. In part one, we spoke to people about their experiences of fires and floods and discussed how climate change is intensifying Australia's natural disasters. In this podcast, we're going to look to the future to try to understand how you prepare for devastating climate disasters, how you survive. We speak to people who've learned about resilience the hard way and experts who say we'd be lost if communities didn't step up. So I'm standing where the house used to be. Right. That's their car there. Yeah. And their house was just the apex left down there. And so they were there for 30 hours. 30 hours, yeah. We, 30 hours plus. We're trying to work out. We don't know exactly what time it came down, but most things came down around the same time. This is what's left down the bottom where I was pointing out. That's just the apex of the house and a few bits and pieces. Wow. I'm in the valley which straddles the main arm creek. Yeah another hinterland valley just out of Mullumbimby. I'm standing on the balcony of the local hall, a gorgeous building made of hardwood standing proud deep in the rainforest. The man I'm talking to doesn't want us to use his real name, so we'll call him Simon. He's showing us pictures of what the area looked like just a few days after the torrent of water which came through this valley. Although in truth we don't need the pictures, the whole area is a mess of mud and debris. There's a pile of half a dozen cars that appear to have been picked up and tossed by the raging water as if they were stuffed animals. They were cut off for a few days up here, although the road is now open. Simon recalls the confusion of the days after the flood. In the immediate response, we just didn't know where everyone was. We didn't know how many landslides we had. We had quite a few houses completely destroyed, some with mud coming into the bathroom, the house still standing like neck high and stuff like that. Uh, Houses pushed off their footings and a lot of people trapped in or out. One of our residents had landslides on either side of his house. One is huge, it's like about a football field wide and maybe three long. And he said it was like 100 year old trees just marching down the hill. Communication with the outside world was almost impossible right after the floods and landslides. It's tough at the best of times up in these valleys. Simon reckons proper comms are crucial during disasters. As an example, my neighbours, the ones that were 30 hours under rubble, if it wasn't for their neighbours doing checks to see how everyone was, they'd be dead. Mm. And for when they did finally get hold of someone, they were digging for six hours, I believe, to get Vado out, the mother. Then my friend's partner, she had to walk up almost to top the hill, Mount Jerusalem, 
just to get a signal so she could say what had happened and go back at a geolocation, go back up again. So it took a while before he could even get that information out. Simon hasn't worked since the flood back in February. Every moment of every day since has been spent keeping his community safe. Working with his neighbours, he's organised rescues, food drops and communications. He tells me there are mushrooms growing in his living room due to flood damage, but isn't thinking about that just yet. He's focused on getting this valley back on its feet. Myself and a few of the other organisers were sleeping here for almost a month, just because we didn't have time to go home. If we were organised, um, which now we are, uh, we've got a lot of UHF radios out with our core team, it's about 10 people, then we could say, hey, these areas, go check. These, you know, Go check on particularly people who have health problems, we have people that needed to go to uh, have chemo treatment, uh, people with heart conditions. But we, we organised a lot of accommodation. Well, actually, a lot of people were organising accommodation. Some people were amazing and gave up their... Uh, houses or Airbnbs, some people not so cool. Simon say says that there's been a lot of help from emergency responders and the army. But for him, nothing will replace a well-prepared community's ability to fend for itself. Do you think it's possible to keep everyone safe? You can never keep everyone safe. But I mean, in terms of if, if something like this happened again, how effective is all the planning in the world going to be, do you think? Well, with every disaster, it's basically triage there's no way to keep every area safe and you try and do the best you can with every scenario for us we're putting in a system where we can help as many people as possible and train them to help themselves which is you know a very good way of dealing with it but no there's always going to be casualties and fatalities and houses lost it's you know it's just the nature of the world we can't control the world maybe if we less emissions we could control a little bit but even if we had a stable climate there would still be disasters and you just do the best you can all right thanks fellas couldn't do it without you I'm not really up to serious today. You've got me on my bad day. You must be exhausted. Just today, like yesterday, I go home early from work because I just felt so, like, um, good. <laughs> I wouldn't say unwell, but just, like, it was just, yeah. I, like I said, when I was in Tassie, because of the position I was in, it's all I did was try and stop the clear felling of old growth forest. Mm. Like 24 hours a day is the last thing I thought of when I went to bed. It's the first thing I thought of in the morning. It's the only conversations I had. Didn't have any other conversations or any other life for two years. I, you know, it just went fully hard. So this is only six weeks or something now. My colleague John Hanscom is speaking there to Yukai community leader Mel Blore. It's a sunny afternoon in the small village of a few hundred, just to the northwest of Byron Bay. We're in the community hall, which has acted as an emergency hub for the last couple of months. The flooding Tweed River was lapping at the back steps of this old building back at the high watermark at the end of February, far higher than previous floods. But while Yukai was largely spared, it was still a traumatic event for a lot of people. There's a lot of people living in the, what I call the hills here, so they have pretty gnarly driveways that cut across creeks to get up to their houses. Also, all the, I'm one of those people, so all those creeks just changed position. And that's what they do. Like, the earth 
likes to move it's not a static thing rivers and creeks are like snakes you know they move across the landscape it's just us that have put our structures on them they expect them to stay where they are so so these creeks did what they like to do and they moved spots so then no one could in the hills could get out then because they either their creek had moved or the land had slipped like in main arm communications were difficult at the start our communications were down, so that just put everyone into chaos a little bit. For my personal story was my son was having a sleepover and then the first flood came and so I was like, OK, well, you'll have to just stay there now. And then the second flood came and it was a bit more serious and I didn't know he was on top of a hill. So it's a very landslip-prone place. So I didn't know if he was even alive or underneath a landslip or what the situation was, I couldn't get onto the, um, the family that was hosting him. So at 4.30 that next morning, I was out with my husband and got our push bikes over the flooded river with a rope and I would get on down to save our, find our son, which we did, and he was fine and that was great. They were lucky, but Mel wants to be prepared for next time. She tells us what resilience means to her. To me, it means agility. So... We don't know what's, what the future holds for us, but to be connected and light on your feet so that you can mobilise and move and adjust to what the new situation is, whether that's in a, an acute moment, like a flood or a fire, or if it's a more chronic moment, then having the, the connectivity between your not only your people, but your landscape as well, being in tune with what's happening on both those levels and being able to adjust yourself and to maintain a lightness of heart and a lightness of spirit amongst it all. You know, I think that's what resilience is. We are putting the built, the created, against what's natural as well and there's always going to be some sort of butting up point where it doesn't really necessarily work. You can run from extremes like it's the earth trying to shake us all off because we're basically parasitic and we don't know how to live on it, right down to these things are going to keep happening simply because of where we, where we live. But in either extreme scenario, we've still got to learn to prepare better, to understand where we live. We can't just assume it's never going to happen because it's highly likely to happen again. A thousand kilometres from the Northern Rivers on the New South Wales far south coast, Veronica Abbott is still helping black summer victims. She didn't lose her house in the fires, but her home, the little town of Korma, was devastated. People who have living in the village sort of said because they lived in a village, they thought fire was never going to come here. And I think that's a bit unrealistic. And it's certainly been proven to be here when we lost 13 homes in the village. It does speak to me of a bit more self-responsibility about when you choose to live somewhere that is prone, then you've got to ameliorate that some way and learn to build in particular ways. In the immediate aftermath of the fires, Veronica set up a relief centre at the local community hall, managing and distributing aid and giving people somewhere to go for information and solace. It it just gave me something to do on a daily basis. I mean, I am a, a doer, but again, driven by just devotion to my community. Also, part of it was... My garden that I've been developing since we started to build the house was also part of my business and a pretty important part of me. 
and that was destroyed. So I didn't want to be at home looking at burnt dirt and the smell of burnt garden actually just broke my heart. So part of it was distraction. Well, as soon as the taller dead things in my garden were removed, which I just said to my husband one day, they've got to go. I can't stand looking at that death anymore I was able to start finding more time and putting more time into that but I needed a space myself to just process what we had actually lost because everybody had loss. It's nearly three years on but the hall still acts as a relief centre of sorts. It's a hub where community-led initiatives like fundraising concerts are cooked up. Starting to look more at activities and being able to just use some of the stuff that we've been given, um, a lot of the craft supplies and things, to give people just something to, to do for some time out. You know, get their heads out of the fire space because, I mean, there are some people who are still, most of their day is driven by... Um, appointments or phone calls or forms they have to fill out still because of the fire. So to get their head out of that for a bit, now we're down to one day a week. Wednesday is drop-in day where people just come and hang out, have a chat, have a cuppa, have a bit of a laugh, still find out a few things that are available for people who are still living rough and struggling for all number of reasons to to start to do a building project or whatever, to still get information. Most importantly, it is that that community gathering space. It's, It's our space. After the fires, the South Coast was dotted with these spontaneous community relief centres, filled with people like Veronica helping each other through their trauma. She says she'd like to see the future of emergency response grow to include regional hubs of people employed just to help out in any way possible. Veronica says this kind of force would help make communities more resilient. The idea that services once again were stretched beyond their sort of regular capacity and for me that suggests, again, if we're looking at this happening regularly now, we have to increase that capacity and that we've got depots all over so that they can be called on quickly and if that means having some sort of first responder, I don't want to call it army, but some sort of group of people trained. It's almost like the old idea of the National Guard, but against catastrophe rather than an invading force. And if that's an opportunity for a gap year or two for young people to go out and get paid, build up that kind of force and also learn that the, the skills that go along with that and then once their couple of years is up back into communities with that common sense and wonderful knowledge because it's going to happen again and if we can train our people up through a couple of years of experience to do something like that I think that would be really useful. I'm Greg Mullins. Um, I've been a firefighter for 50 years, just a bit over 50 years. I started as a volunteer um, my first fire was in 1971, and 1978 became a career firefighter. I ended up commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales for just under 14 years, retired in 2017, and came back to being a volunteer. I'm a climate counsellor, chair of the board for Ambulance New South Wales, and I formed Emergency Leaders for Climate Action in 2019. Greg Mullins is a towering figure in emergency response circles. He's been involved in responding to some of the biggest emergencies in the past five decades. He says they've changed a lot in that period. 
There used to be patterns of fire seasons. So around Sydney, they'd be 10, 11 years apart and in the Blue Mountains. And after 1994, which really came out of the blue because it rained in November, 93, and we thought we won't get big fires this year. It just dried out quickly, got very, very hot. And then we had fires come back in 1997, 2001, 2002, 2003. So more frequent bad fire seasons, and that was changed weather patterns. And the weather itself was just more extreme. It was hotter, drier, more windy. The humidity was lower. And it culminated in 2009, the Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria. We had to add in a new fire danger rating of catastrophic, which was literally off the scale. He doesn't believe emergency services are prepared at all for the increased volatility of weather events. What you've found over the years was just spurts of growth and increases in capacity after a disaster. And recently, the Productivity Commission in Australia found that 97% of expenditure on disasters happens after the event and only 3% before the event which is just back to front. It's a bit like in the health system, treating diseases after they occur rather than trying to prevent them. So there needs to be a real change there. But as we adapt or try to adapt to changing conditions, the emergency services really need to upgrade their numbers, more volunteers, many more full-time firefighters mainly, so that they can take the load Um, national parks, forestry, firefighters. So we do need the paid and the volunteer rather than just relying on volunteers all the time. But resilience work, getting communities to a point where they can take a hit and bounce back far more quickly. And that's so much to do there. Infrastructure, design of houses, hazard reduction, burning, flood mitigation and training communities. Mel agrees that the money distribution is skewed to the aftermath of a disaster, but she also argues that a focus on government agencies is missing the point. Communities need to take the lead for themselves. We have a strategy of encouraging strength and connection amongst groups of neighbours, because when push comes to shove, just from a disaster response, it's, it's your neighbour that's going to get you out of underneath that landslip or off your roof in the flood, or you're going to work with them to save your house against a fire or get, jump in the same car and take off or however that looks. And so we are looking to strengthen the social cohesion, I guess, amongst neighbours and neighbourhoods, hoping that that will catch a number of elements in, under that one net, one of those things being mental health. And then we're putting our focus on preparing for come what may. Um, we'd like to have a first response rollout kit. Um, we'd like to our evacuation centre to be off-grid and, and prepared because we're on the banks of the river here uh, for it to come up and flood our evac centre, yet we can still clean it out. Communications, we're on to. You know, we won't be in that position ever again. She calls the government a benevolent machine, slow and unwieldy, but she concedes that it does have a part to play. Think of it as a steam train. Go, cut some firewood, get the fire going, you know, get the bit it all burning and the happening. And then they you just start to pull off the station. That's the way that they operate, and that they're a large machine. And so, I might personally, I would like it if they were 
a bit more uh, quick off the mark and agile, but I understand that that's not the way that they operate and, and they haven't operated. And I don't expect that to change moving forward. So my response to that is, okay, we understand who you are and we're thankful for the help that you bring us when it arrives. Um, and it's just been invaluable. You know, our people have gone up to the roof in their underwater. They're going to get some financial assistance now. And then the army was here to help pull out that, those mattresses and so on and so forth. But wanting government to be different, well, for Mel, that's just a waste of time. My position is if everyone knows what the situation is, rather than complaining about it wanting to be different, is to adjust to fill the holes or to make it be what you want it to be in your own way. So a bit like um, what we were talking about before with community resilience for us is we can rely on us for at least the first week. You know, if we if we complain about the no one came to help us in that first week, that's a wasted energy. I feel, for me, that energy should be better directed towards how can we better mobilise to look after ourselves in that first week. And so that's what I'm interested in doing. And not just for that first week, you know, I've got a fairly regenerative vision of um, how my community can be resilient in, in a broader capacity moving forward too. It's not just disaster response. Greg argues that governments aren't responding appropriately and they're not learning from the past. Two years on and only 14 out of the 80 recommendations of the Royal Commission into the Black Summer Fires have been acted on. But, Greg says, we also can't prepare for everything. Humans have this incredible arrogance thinking, well, we can deal with anything. And even the term adaptation in climate change, I think, is a huge misnomer. And I think it's dangerous because a lot of people seem to think, oh, yeah, well, look, it'll get warmer. And we'll just incrementally adapt. And that's a load of crap. Pardon my French, but we're reaching tipping points. And the scientists are explaining this to us about how things will suddenly flip. And I think we've hit a tipping point globally with fires. We're getting massive heat waves in Siberia, temperatures over 40 degrees accompanied by huge fires, permafrost melting. We had winter grass fires in Colorado with 160-kilometre-per-hour winds that burnt 1,100 buildings and killed people, and it snowed the next day. You can't deal with fires like this. So, yes, incrementally we'll have better knowledge, we'll have some better equipment, but we have to understand as a human race that we actually don't control everything and um, some things you can't adapt to, which is why. Uh, emissions reduction is so important because it's, it's actually about saving the planet and everything that lives on it. A key point, says Greg, is that we have to consider how we build the places we live. So there's a lot of work to do in terms of infrastructure, hardening infrastructure, critical infrastructure, so that you still have mobile phone coverage, you still have electricity, you still have clean water to drink, lifelines like food deliveries. But training people in what to do in a disaster because in the worst disasters you have to assume you might be on your own for 72 hours or more so you'll need clean water food torches etc there's simple measures you can take having good first aid kits knowing who your neighbors are and knowing how you can 
group together to help each other who has what. Jenny down the road has a small boat and Bob has a chainsaw, whatever. This is true community resilience and that's where the focus needs to be as well as recruiting a lot more emergency services personnel and spreading them out more so that when disasters hit over a wide area, there are people in the community who do have resources and can respond, can organise spontaneous volunteers. Those spontaneous responders are everything in an emergency. But Greg says we're not supporting them nearly enough. In these most recent disasters, we've focused more on resourcing emergency services and building that expectation that, you know, there'll be a fire truck in every driveway when there's a fire or there'll be a flood boat at every rooftop needed, which is just totally unrealistic. So we need to skill up the communities so that they can safely, as safely as possible, operate to help themselves until organised assistance can arrive. And I went to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and spoke to emergency authorities there and they said, look, you know, if there weren't spontaneous responders from the community, many, many hundreds more would have died and we have to embrace that but help that to happen in the future because that's just reality. We won't have enough resources in truly widespread catastrophic disasters. Uh, Chas Keys, uh, yesterday's man. Used to be uh, Deputy Director General of the State Emergency Service, New South Wales. Chas Keys also thinks more needs to be spent on mitigation and resilience. One key area those resources need to go, he says, is better education of communities. Extreme events are extreme events. They produce extreme circumstances. We have to recognise that, and, and one way of doing it, of course, is to educate the people about it and educate them in what they can do if they need to put up with or experience a big event, as every now and again a generation does. Uh, you need a better prepared population. The more educated the community, the more resilient. We need a better disaster-educated community. I think that goes to school education as well as adult education. You can't prevent floods any more than you can prevent fires, and it's not wise to even try. What you can do is dampen down their consequences and make it easier for people to manage them when they happen. Chas suggests something like a public education campaign. Uh, look, there's all sorts of things you can do. Advertisements. I mean, the way we educated people <coughs> a few decades ago about HIV AIDS, for example, uh, the way we've educated people about smoking, we have used the media to ensure that people comprehend the dangers. Uh, I think everyone now knows the dangers of smoking. 50 years ago, that was less true, and we had an awful lot more people smoking. I, mean, I gather at the end of World War II, something like 70% of Australian males smoked. Well, it's now down to less than 10. That was achieved by education, much of it through the media and a lot of other help as well. I mean, it's been a multi-pronged thing, but you could call it all educational, I think. Reg looks at the future and sees worse fires and more of them, bigger floods more regularly. He says he's frightened. He knows you can't save everyone. As a firefighter, you know, I was in situations where priority one became saving the life of the people who were under my charge and myself. And 
that was rare over that 50 years of being on the front line. That was rare, but now it's common. You just have situations where you think, this is really bad. Where can I go to uh, seek shelter? A better educated and prepared community would mean more of these spontaneous responders. And from what I've seen of people in the Northern Rivers and the South Coast, building their own bridges, rescuing their neighbours, they're willing to learn. The future is challenging in the disaster country, and this idea that we can't always rely on emergency services when we need them might be jarring to some people. The benevolent machine, as Melin Yukai calls it, can't seem to keep up with the pace of change. But was it ever realistic? If the coast from Melbourne to Rockhampton goes up in smoke, or an area the size of Tasmania suffers the worst floods on record, that we'd have the capacity to keep everyone safe? Everywhere I went in the Northern Rivers, people were grateful for the help they got from the SES and the ADF, and for whatever government grants are available. But there's an understanding that at the end of the day, they're on their own. That shouldn't be a sad thought, because people are stepping up. My name's Naomi Moran, and I'm the General Manager of the Koori Mail, Australia's fortnightly national Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander newspaper, proudly based here in Lismore on the lands of the Widjibawaiwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. The levee in Lismore makes up the back wall of the Koori Mail, an entirely Aboriginal-owned fortnightly newspaper. I talked to Naomi right next to a pumping station. February flood level has been marked in pink spray paint, and it towers over us. When we visited in April, Naomi was excited that the paper was about to be put out after they'd missed a couple of editions due to the floods. Instead of their usual journalism, the Koori Mail has become the Koori Kitchen, a grassroots community hub trying to keep everyone safe and fed. Uh, we have a medical centre. People can come in and access triage on the spot if they have any injuries following the flood. They can speak to a GP, registered nurse practitioners, get scripts filled... If those medical staff are identifying that people are in a really emotionally and mental vulnerable state, they can refer them to our emotional and wellbeing team, which is situated across the road here. We have a, a kitchen providing hot meals. We're you know, serving up to 700 to 1,000 meals every day to those that are in need, but also supporting our volunteers and workers that are on the ground here working tirelessly to get the Lismore CBD and the surrounding regions, uh, you know, back to how it was before the flood hits. And we know that's going to take a long time. It's certainly, you know, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, but we're doing everything that we can to support the community here. It's entirely volunteer-led. People come and give a bit of time if they can, and they come from all over the place, some driving hours and spending their leave just helping out. The ADF has been a big help here with the heavy lifting. Governments of all levels haven't been that visible in this space, though. What we're running here is completely supported by community donations and community efforts. So we don't receive any government funding to support what we're doing here on the ground. Obviously, we'd like to see more presence and engagement on that level. We understand that resources are stretched. Uh, you know, uh, we're very empathetic that uh, there's a lot of people to cater to, a lot of people to talk to. But I guess what we can continue to doing is, is not focus on that, making sure that what we're doing best here continues to happen and make sure that, you know, I guess we're reaching out to as many people as possible to support what we're doing here. The Koori Kitchen is one of the most remarkable places I've ever visited. It's a kaleidoscope of activity, people streaming in and out of a couple of marquees set up in a car park on the side of the road. People are cooking food, organising logistics and dispatching donations and teams of volunteers. There's a tent where people are just having a yarn, helping each other through their trauma. Could any government recreate this energy? 
Then there's the CWA building in Mullumbimby. There are no middle-aged women organising charity sales or rolling out the bunting when we visit, but there's still a huge amount going on. Silver-haired matrons have been replaced with trendy-looking 20-somethings tapping on MacBooks, coordinating a disaster response. This is the Mullumbimby Community-Led Crisis Response HQ. It's where Kaylee, who took us up to Hewenbrook, works. It's changed my outlook on the way that I live my life and I can't go back to doing what I was doing after everything I've seen and everything I've experienced. It's just, it's different now. And, I, and a lot of people feel the same way. Veronica Abbott in the fire-ravaged town of Cormor says she's not surprised people are still turning up to her relief centre years after the fires. Because that's how people are. And, and that's what happens when you're in a crisis like that. People had the means to help their community, so they did. Because there's um, no way that anybody, even from an SES level, could have gotten to everybody in that time, again, with the scale of what was going on. So that's who we are. No shock. I was just, yep, that's how we are. That's how communities really work. You get out there and you help the people if you've got the means to help and you don't worry too much about yourselves. And anybody who's got a boat or something like that, generally has a bit of common sense about being out on the water. And they were probably in a good place to be doing that. Everywhere I go, people are committed to staying right where they are. And this sense of community we've witnessed is a key part of keeping people safe in a disaster, but also a key reason why people are staring down disasters and staying put. That's certainly the case for Mel in Yukai. It's a personal choice. So there's people who are in these houses on the banks of a river that... Um, has flooded into their house twice in the last five years. Obviously, they're getting to have a more streamlined collection of personal goods by now themselves. Some definitely are selling, and you know, there's been a flurry of real estate agents in the village in the last few weeks, that's for sure. And others feel that that's okay for them. The advantage for them of living in that space is worth the trauma that they would go through for that to occur. So they're rebuilding the underneath of their houses with marine ply and metal and things like this and planning for this to happen again, but are still choosing to be in those places. For me, living in the forest, having to walk, I had to walk out so <laughs> in my gumboots and come in here and be the mama bear in the hall every day for weeks, I would do that again in order to live where I live. That'd be okay. That was the second and final part of Disaster Country, a series from Voice of Real Australia. Reporting was done by me, Tom Melville, as well as Lara Corrigan and John Hanscom. Mixing and sound design by Lara Corrigan. Our photographer is Marina Neal. For more stories and to see images and videos, go to canberratimes.com.au or your local ACM paper. This is an ACM podcast. podcast.